Did you ever hear of Kong? Why, yes. Some native superstition, isn't it? A god or a spirit or something. Well, anyway, neither beast nor man. Something monstrous, all-powerful, still living, still holding that island in a grip of deadly fear. Well, every legend has a basis of truth. Welcome to Now Playing's King Kong Retrospective Series. I'm offering him adventure, fame, the thrill of a lifetime, and a long sea voyage. Well, I don't see how you can be amused by gorillas. I think they're dull. Well, this one's 60 feet tall. What do you think of him? 60 feet? That's right. This is Kong, the strongest living creature on Earth. Hosted by Stuart. I, I, I was just afraid that you might be one of those self-obsessed literary types. The Tweety Twerp with his nose in this book. Jacob. I'm on the level. No funny business. Trust me and keep your chin up. And Arnie. Here we are. Just one big happy family. This podcast may contain detailed plot spoilers and mild language. Are you sure about this? Our primates too. Listener discretion is advised. It's time to show Kong that man is king. We hope you enjoy the show. Lights, cameras, Kong. Today, we are discussing King Kong, starring Jeff Bridges, Charles Grodin, Jessica Lange, directed by John Gillerman. This is the now playing co-host whose life was actually saved by Deep Throat, Arnie. <laughs> and Stuart. And you can tell I'm a Taurus by the shape of my ears. This is Jacob. King Kong 76. I've talked again and again about how often I've seen this film. I've now seen it twice more. And man, did I have a realization. <laughs> What's that? I had only seen half of this film all of those times. Yeah, you were a kid. You were, what, like four or five? I read up. It was 1978 when it first hit television in a two-night event. They actually broke the movie up so that they could run it with so many commercials that it took four hours. Yes, and I watched that three-hour NBC cut. Somebody put it on Betamax? Oh. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Just holding on. Not giving up on anything. Driving my DeLorean, listening to my eight tracks. <laughs> and so I was able to get a copy of the Betamax recording. And let me tell you something. A fuzzy, looks like it needs its tracking adjusted videotape, made these special effects look flawless. I'm like, because <laughs> I watched it first. I'm like, wow, I can't even tell where they're doing it. That snake looked awesome, I bet. <laughs> but King Kong only shows up 10 minutes before the end of night one. Mm, yeah, <laughs> that is where you really do get screwed. So you grew up on night one? No, I grew up on night two. Okay. Yeah. I never saw this boat stuff. I just started <laughs> when Dwan was being offered to Kong. You might have not have watched it as much as if you had seen part one. Yeah, I think I just taped night two. And because night two started with the full opening credits, it didn't just jump you in. I think I thought that was the whole movie and I watched <laughs> it again and again. Needless to say, my eyes were opened when I realized that there was about an hour and 45 Kongless minutes in that cut. And to be clear, you haven't seen this movie since that influential childhood time. 
No, I imagine 84 or 85 would be the last time I saw it. I mean, it was fresh in my memory when King Kong Lives came out, but that was it. Yeah, I kind of had a realization, too. I had not seen this before, but... I think I kind of felt like I'd seen what this inspired. I don't know about the Universal Studios in Florida, but the one out here in California, they used to have a King Kong attraction. It burnt down when there was a huge backlot fire that burnt priceless audio, like Nirvana's original tapes for their breakthrough album, like gone, like all these amazing recordings gone from this fire. King Kong burned down. But thinking back on that ride, because I, I love that, going through that little attraction. And they also had the things where you could like stand in his palm and they green screen it. But that never felt like 1933 King Kong to me. And watching this one, I'm like, ah, this is what Universal took from. Not exactly, but you're on the right track. Really? You pointed out something very interesting. Universal Studios brags that King Kong is theirs. And yet we know the 1933 film was made by RKO Pictures, and when this 1976 movie starts, it's the Paramount logo. What is Universal talking about by saying (laughs) Kong is theirs? They were making a different Kong Pictures. This is a case of two Kongs coming together in 1976, and Universal ended up having to blink. Why did all of this happen? I think it's a very interesting little story here. But first and foremost, I think the most important thing is Marion Cooper died. The creator of that first 1933 movie, he died, and his Space Kong idea died with him. And RKO Pictures was like, whoo, no more lawsuits. Let's talk to people. Let's sell this concept. And they talked to Universal Studios, and they talked to Dino De Laurentiis, and they made a verbal agreement with Universal Studios, and they signed a contract with Dino De Laurentiis, and all of a sudden, oh boy, call the lawyers. Who owns Kong, and who's going to make this movie? And the Universal Kong is considered by some the superior film. Now, how could we know this? It never made yeah. it. But they did write the script. They cast it. They had a director. And they were going forward with pre-production. They had their own ideas. Quite frankly, it sounded a lot like what Peter Jackson is ultimately going to make. It was set in 1933, and they were going to keep some stop-motion effects and combine that with Man of Suit kind of stuff. Like, the Kong would be a guy in the gorilla suit, and the dinosaurs would be puppets and, you know, using that. And and it would be some kind of merge of all of that. But more importantly, they really wanted it to have more of a love rectangle, I guess you could call it. The film director, Carl Denham, would be played by Peter Falk, and he was also going to love the love interest, and he was going to be obsessed with her, as well as the second mate, who would either be played by Robert Redford or Nick Nolte. They hadn't quite decided on it yet. And, of course, the ape was in love with the girl as well. And the film would end most definitively with the director getting into the plane, firing at the ape, and the ape would kill him. So they would actually, some of the complaints we had about Carl Denham feels like the enemy in that 1933 film, they they were going to draft him as such and give him a villain's death at the end of the film. But, of course, none of that got made. So they based an attraction on a script. Okay. Yes, they ended up cutting a deal. And the deal was this. Dino, you get to make your film, and we can't make a Kong film for two more years after that. But 
we then own the rights to the character. And so after that time passes, let's ramp up Kong, let's get an attraction, let's build that ride. The funny thing is, it takes them 29 years to make Peter Jackson's Kong. That's the film that they ended up making, but they, I guess, you know, some might say they they waited for the right person to achieve it, but I think Dino kind of soils Kong's legacy is the other thing with the 1986 film King Kong Lives. That's what I was going to ask. Which studio made King Kong Lives then? I believe it's all Dino on that. Samuel Goldwyn and Dino. But why make it at all? I mean, I think one important thing to point out is it's the 1970s, and we love disaster films. Airport was a big hit in 1970, came back in 1975. Poseidon Adventure, the ship had turned over in 1972. Towering Inferno was on fire in 1975. Earthquake, the Hindenburg, and of course, Jaws is coming out. That's why Universal wanted it. They wanted something to piggyback on their killer shark movie. Let's get a killer ape movie going. And so the appetite was there, and that's why, I guess, Paramount felt like this movie could be greenlit at a $12 million budget, but ultimately that would balloon to be the biggest budget of any movie at that time. It ended up being a $25 million affair. Yeah, I definitely thought Jaws was probably the impetus. You mentioned The Towering Inferno. When I looked up this director, he did The Towering Inferno. Oh, did he? Because I definitely got that disaster movie vibe off this one. Yes. Dino first approached Roman Polanski. He said no, and he also fled the country. Like, there were two (laughs) reasons why he couldn't do King Kong, and it's kind of a weird choice anyway. And so they went with a guy who had actually been an aerial pilot in World War II. John Gillerman is a war hero, and he had made films in the 60s about that the blue max and other world war ii films have been made in the 60s and yeah he had transitioned into towering inferno he knew how to do disaster films and keep in mind when i say they're hits not only are they making a lot of money but like airport was nominated for best picture towering inferno is nominated for best picture it's a bad film i just want to put it out there it's kind of hard to imagine people taking it seriously but they did at that time special effects extravaganzas like that were so new and fresh the movies really hadn't been doing that kind of epic since cleopatra bombed in the early 60s that this felt like wow we can finally spend a lot of money on films and give it all the oscars the point is dino felt very confident he had the next jaws but and he was bragging to the press at the end of jaws no one cry when shark die at the end of my kong they all cry (laughs) i'm not sure i'm crying here but uh... i wept as a child every time (laughs) i think i watched the tape time and time again hoping beyond hope that it would have a different ending and kong would finally take down those damn helicopters well that's because you didn't sit through the first half of this you would have been bored to tears then (laughs) yes but this is dino's real intent is he is clinging to the idea of beauty and the beast of the love story and he's not going to do dinosaurs he's not going to focus on some of the action and adventure of the 33 movie so that was a choice i was like it wasn't because they ran out of money dino wanted a serious dramatic kong i mean i don't think that was the only reason i think you're right this is the most expensive movie of its time they didn't have any money for any more dinosaurs yeah because i i had so many questions about this film i also think it helps that the universe Universal movie was like, we're doing dinosaurs. And so Dina was like, we're not doing dinosaurs. We're doing it in 1933. Well, we're going to do it modern day. All of the choices that Universal was making, Dino was being contrary and saying ours will be totally different. 
And so, yeah, part of that choice is to say, I want this film to be more grounded, more dramatic, and it's really important to get the right chick. So how about Meryl Streep? Believe it or not, that was the first choice until Dino saw her photo and said, no way. (laughs) Yeah, she actually told that story. I happened to watch it. I think it was Letterman. And she told of the story about how she was pretty much cast until somebody said she was too ugly. (laughs) It wasn't someone. It was Dino. (laughs) And you know what? I'm not going to wade into that drama. Like Meryl Streep has her own look. I just wonder what it would be for her career. You know, her first movie ends up being Deer Hunter. She becomes the Oscar-nominated Meryl Streep greatest actress of all time because of that. If this had been her first movie she may not have the same reputation today what? jessica lang isn't a meryl streep today I'll, I'll ask the room do you think jessica lang is a meryl streep all right i know jessica lang as a name but when i looked her up it turns out i think the only other movie of hers i've seen was tootsie and i thought that was mayor winningham <laughs> Yeah, well, she won for that one. That was a big one for her supporting. She wasn't the big star of that film, but that is a big movie for her. I think she, at this point in her career, was just a model. She was actually living in a small apartment in New York with Grace Jones and the future wife of Mick Jagger and trying to make it as anything. And this movie kind of fell into her lap. And not unlike her character, she's an aspiring starlet who had been hanging out in parties and had not yet having her chance to prove herself. So this is the movie that will bring this beauty to the screen, to the beast. And yeah, she will end up winning multiple Oscars. And I do think she has a serious reputation, but she also does a lot of American Horror Story episodes that are maybe less dignified than Meryl Streep movies. Uh, You know what I mean. She can play in genre in ways that Meryl can't. That reminds me, I did see her also in the Cape Fear remake, but Mm -hmm. nobody ended up looking good out of that. So yeah. Jeff Bridges is relatively new as well. They were looking at other actors. I think they were looking at Robert Redford. Again, anytime Universal said, we're doing this, they said no. They had cast Peter Falk as the oil company executive and then said, no, we can't use him because the other side got him. But the one that they really wanted was Chris Sarandon, who I guess Fright Night would at this point be the thing people most know him for. Princess Bride probably more than Fright Night, but... Us for Fright Night. Yeah, maybe I'm just showing my bias. It's like, he's the Fright Night guy. But yeah, okay, Princess Bride, Dog Day Afternoon. He had he was a credible actor who some saw as leading man potential. The weird one for me in this film is Charles Grodin. Because Charles Grodin's an actor who I wasn't even aware of. I mean, again, I saw this film a lot growing up. But it wasn't until like the late 80s that I really started becoming aware of this guy with the couch trip and midnight run. Taking care of business was the big one. (laughs) That's always the big one, right? We need to do that podcast because we don't do enough Jim Belushi movies, really. (laughs) That was the one, though, where like the ads all said Charles Grodin, Charles Grodin. And so that and Beethoven really drove him home in my mind. Beethoven the dog movie? I want to stop you there. In case you think we're talking about like Amadeus and classical music. No, that big dog movie. Yes. Yes. Let me put it in context. Charles Grodin, in my mind, is the prototypical other guy in a romantic comedy. When you want to see a couple fall in love, but the girl's already engaged to someone and needs to get out of that marriage, Charles Grodin is that asshole that she's engaged to be married to. He was very uptight, and he played that kind of yuppie that just couldn't roll with it, and usually was cast in comedies for that quality, but also was apparently very smart, like was a director himself, and ended up becoming a political 
political commentator on television. But yeah, oil executive, it's within his wheelhouse here. He makes sense, but he wouldn't have been a big star. They were looking at others like George C. Scott coming off Patton, Robert Mitchum. The thing is, I feel like I know what Charles Grodin looks like, but he's so young here and with that mustache. I thought it was Dabney Coleman for half the movie. Yeah, it would have worked. You could have gone with Dabney. I mean, I don't know what he was doing, but yeah. So these are all stars on the cusp who will be in this big movie that will propel them into bigger roles. And I think maybe not Charles Grodin, but the other two were still with us. And we think about and, and see from time to time. So if nothing else, Dino's movie has had some staying power. But I, I'm going to hold on to what I've been implying earlier. There seems to be a... Maybe it's generational. There seems to be a divide. Old 1933 fans hate this film. Kids of the 1970s and 80s love this film. And I think it's how old you were when you saw it tends to be whether you are for or against Dino's vision here. I have not seen this movie ever before this week. I thought I had maybe even seen a clip. Nope. It was all King Kong Lives. I didn't know this movie at all. Yeah, this is my first time, too, and I didn't know it existed until we talked about doing this retrospective. But it was a big hit. Keep in mind, this thing makes $90 million. They create a visual effects Oscar to give it because that award didn't even exist. The, the snake is that good. The <laughs> critics were all mostly positive. I went back to read reviews, and everyone felt at the time they had seen something new and fresh and that this vision was something that hadn't been done on films. I think the other problem is Star Wars comes the next year, and everybody forgets. And this movie was marketed in the same way. I thought Star Wars was the first one to, like mass market characters and really go for that audience but they had this ape on lunch boxes and t-shirts you wouldn't have been able to escape it they even had a strand of hair you could buy with a certificate of authenticity <laughs> this comes from the real kong i think it cost a dollar <laughs> they were out there pushing this movie all year long and the big selling point was a lie <laughs> and dino man he's crafty but he in this movie we'll get into the special effects as we talk about this plot but in this movie there is only one sequence in which there is a giant robot ape but he told everyone that a giant robot ape is a hundred percent of the performance in the movie so when people <laughs> saw this and the reason why it got the visual effects oscar and we're not talking about King Kong escapes kind of way here with the robot ape. They thought all of this was technicians and puppeteers <laughs> and all of this. But this is Rick Baker in a monkey suit. And they lied to people well, and said it was a robot. There was robotics in that face, at least. I yes. mean, the, the way the eyes move and the mouth. Like, I, I was actually impressed with the facial movements in this film. That was all Rick Baker. The original idea was, let's just do prosthetics. And Rick Baker is like, have you seen those last Planet of the Ape movies? <laughs> we don't need to do that anymore. That is played out. We need to do something different. And if we can't make the giant robot do it, and God knows they were having problems with the giant hands, like someone got crushed by them. Like, Oh, it, it's embarrassing when we see that robot ape in this. Well, at least, yeah, Jessica Lang doesn't even get her leg broke or something. Some guy got knocked out by this thing. She got a pinched nerve in her neck. <laughs> well, I'm not saying it was fun, but I'm saying everyone knew early on they weren't going to be able to pull off the giant robot for everything. And so, yeah, they looked at different people. They brought in this short bodybuilder and built him a suit. And one concept was they actually, rather than have it be a gorilla, which is Rick Baker's idea and what they pretty much end up going with, they were going to have some kind of half-man, half-ape 
evolutionary missing link thing. That's still giant, though. Yeah, it's still big. Uh, maybe not as big, but it was going to be some kind of new look. And that would be a way to differentiate this Kong from previous Kongs. And apparently the new look, I didn't get to see any of that art. It's probably pretty much locked up because when Dino saw it, he said, okay, we'll go with the gorilla suit. But tell everyone it's a robot. Well, the big arm is a robot. I think that counts for something. Okay. Yeah, it's for like, yeah, half a second. No, the arm gets a lot of screen time. Oh, you're talking about the arm that picks her up. Yeah. That arm is the star of the film. You know, in close-up, you get a face or an arm. And that's why I thought this was the inspiration for Universal Studios. I just remember you go sit in Kong's palm and they'll green screen you to look like the apes really picked you up. Yes, I do think if nothing else, if you love that ride, you maybe hate this movie, you can at least love this movie for giving you this ride. Because Giant Ape Kong starts here. But let's get into it, Arnie. Let's talk about a plot, I think. We all know, but hey, let's see how it's changed. King Kong 1976. Yeah, OPEC's involved now. Yeah, I thought I could copy and paste from the 30s one, and it turns out there's so many damn subtle differences, I had to write a new one. Charles Grodin plays Petrox oil executive Fred Wilson, who's leading an expedition to an uncharted and he believes uninhabited island where he suspects a giant oil reserve is ripe for exploiting. Stowing away on his boat is paleontologist Jack Prescott, played by Jeff Bridges. Jack knows more about the island than anyone on board, having read journals from as far back as the 16th century, including rumors of a giant ape on the island. The weather started getting rough, the Petrox Explorer was tossed, but they were fine. Not fine, however, was a smaller yacht in the vicinity. The Petrox Explorer happens upon a life raft with the yacht's only survivor, Dwan, played by Jessica Lange. On the trip, Dwan falls for Jack, but when they get to the island, Dwan has a new man in her life. On the supposedly uninhabited island lives a tribe of natives performing a ceremony to their god, Kong. Jack, Fred, and the rest interrupt the ceremony, so the tribe's leader demands Dwan to offer their god. The oil people, of course, refuse and return to the Petrox Explorer, but some of the tribesmen take a canoe and kidnap Dwan. Jack and some others mount a rescue mission, but it's too late. Dwan is offered up to Kong, who's a 40-foot-tall gorilla. Kong takes Dwan into the jungle, and Jack and the others follow. Kong kills most of the rescue crew, but Jack continues on. Kong falls in love with Dwan, and when Dwan is attacked by a giant snake, Kong comes to her rescue, and during the fight, Jack rescues her and they escape. Outside that jungle, Fred has the bad news that the island has no petroleum. To avoid being fired, Fred concocts the idea to capture Kong for Petrox to use as an advertising gimmick. His men set a trap, and as Jack and Dwan flee Kong, the ape falls into a pit that fills with chemicals knocking him out. They load Kong on the boat and take him to New York. Dwan and Jack are contracted to be in a show revealing Kong to the world, but the paleontologist has ethical concerns about the gig. During the show, Kong sees Dwan and, thinking she's in danger, Kong rips apart his cage, stepping on and killing Fred. Dwan and Jack flee, but Kong gives chase, eventually capturing Dwan. Jack realizes where Kong will go. The World Trade Center looks almost identical to two twin peaks on Kong's island. Jack gives that information to the military with the condition that they capture Kong, not kill him. But you can't trust the military. Kong climbs the World Trade Center with Dwan, only to be shot dead by machine guns mounted on helicopters. Kong falls from the roof of the building, and Dwan cries for the beast as he dies. But Jack refuses to comfort Dwan. 
as credits roll. And as we get started here, we're seeing footage that Dino Dealer, part of the reason why he beat Universal when they couldn't work it out with the lawyers, because at first they're like, well, you have a written agreement. Well, you have a verbal agreement. We'll go with the written agreement. Universal was like, we just optioned the novelization of the 1933 movie. We're adapting that book. We're not doing a remake of that movie. So they were going for it. And it really came down to whoever shot first would win. Because obviously you didn't want to be the second King Kong movie. Even if you were the better one, all the money is going to be made the first time he appears. And so Dino was like, we're going forward. They barely had finished the script January 1976. They just roll on these scenes here where the ship is loading on the dock and they still don't know exactly what the ape is going to look like, how it's going to move. Who's even going to be the romantic female lead? They knew they had bridges and they knew that they had grown and didn't know much else here as we see the setup. And in the TV version, again, there's an hour of extra footage. When you take away commercials, the TV version is three hours long. I feel like there's an hour of extra footage in the theatrical version. The extra stuff in the TV version has never been seen, never put on any video or anything. Mm, okay. I feel like there is connective tissue I would be curious to know. I do know one of the things. You can tell me if it's true. Originally, the conception was the star of it would be much like the 1933 movie, Joe Perko, the four that's like you're not loading enough pipe on this that was going to be played by robert de niro in the other movie here it's non from superman 2 no he did not have much of a bigger part here's the weird thing about this extra cut it's an extra 50 minutes done a few seconds here a few seconds there there's only like five or six totally new scenes but one of them is showing jack before he gets to the boat he's Mm. at a bar he pays off a bartender to drug some guy's drink and then jack steals his id so that's what he's showing to get on the boat and while that may be helpful that also makes jack maybe less noble than we want to see a hero in a movie like this we see him bribe someone to get on here anyway i mean yeah but you know what i'm gonna just say right off the bat you're modernizing kong how do you do that i like this 1976 everyone is worried about the gas prices that is a real concern and having this whole mission being not about a movie shoot but yeah where can we strike oil next because the energy crisis means that yeah we can beat gulf and exxon if we find the next big supply of oil then yeah i think that that is a really good way to write this And Stuart, I'm going to agree with you because I know I've been snarky thus far, but I actually kind of dig the setting for this film. It feels very 70s. We're going to get astrology and oil shortages and environmentalism. Like just it it feels 70s. So yeah, yeah, if you're going to modernize it, Put it in 1976 during that gasoline shortage, that whole crisis. Yeah, make it about oil and make it about a greedy corporation instead of a filmmaker. It it just feels weird when they actually throw back to the original Kong and bring in like a movie actress in this film because I'm digging this new 70s oil story set up for it. The original screenplay had that female character be a photographer and then they ended up giving that part to the Jeff Bridges character. Yeah, it would be weird if they actually had one female crew member aboard this whole male crew. But it's weird because my parents would talk to me about the oil shortages in the lines in 1976. You had to wait a long time to get a gallon of gas, and you could only get a gallon of gas. You don't remember it? 
I was two. I was one for most of 76. Well, no, I mean, it was going on beyond 76. I have a distinct memory of being on a road trip and us being stranded because we went to the gas station, a mile-long pileup of cars. They run out of gas. Yeah, we just got stuck there. I have no memory myself of this, but does that mean Fred, the greasy oil executive, would actually be seen as a hero? Because if he found new oil, people wouldn't have to wait and they wouldn't run out of gas. He's like an American hero to find us new gasoline. I mean, hero is, you know, every generation will decide what their heroes are. He will be rich. He's not the head of this oil company, Petrox. He is only an executive and he sold them on this idea because it sounds like he bribed Nixon before Nixon was kicked out of the White House. Hey, show me some of the photos of this fog mass that we have going on here in the South Pacific. And sure enough, it always has the same density, which would imply that there's some kind of emission going on that could be oil. Yeah, I I do love this because they're saying, oh, it's because of oil. Jeff Bridges is Jack, who has snuck onto the boat. He's, you know, being caught and found out and brought in here. They think he's an oil spy. He's like, no, it's large animals just breathing real heavy. It's just CO2 surrounding the island. And I want to ask, which one is right? I don't know that we ever have the theory proven or disproven, but I don't see Kong coughing up smoke. Like when he goes (laughs) to New York, there's no fog mass following him. And we don't see a lot of other large animals on this island there's a giant snake and that's it i believe that it's kong doing it and we see a giant snake i got to assume there's other giant animals there you think kong has been alive for 400 years well that's my question is is kong alive for 400 years or i mean we're gonna find out in the sequel that there's somewhere a giant lady kong but is this a 400 year old ape or Are there giant apes other than him on that island than having baby giant apes? Yeah, I think we can save some of this for next week, but I do know that in the original script conception, Bridges' character has a line about how he got some of this information from a ship's log that Rome is suppressing. Yeah, there's a line about the Vatican, like, suppressing stuff in this movie. There was a whole subplot about that. They would actually have a Vatican library as one of the characters on this boat. Dino thought that was too confusing. I actually think it's kind of cool and conspiratorial. I think it could have worked. No, that is the stuff that I gravitated to in this film. Film is this weird oil setting and yeah that the pope is suppressing information about king kong give me more of that yeah i feel like you could have done something with that but dino said no so it just ends up being this one-off line let me be the dissenter that's confusing as hell why would the vatican want to hide a gorilla because the catholics are behind all the conspiracies exactly that just it plays into the notion that the catholics want to control the conversation evolution in general is something that threatens them and so if there was this missing link man or anything really about a giant ape they wouldn't like it they don't like dinosaurs either yeah that's a bridge too far i'm glad they kept it out of here i you know simple is good for a movie like this well it makes it for a certain audience and you happen to be that audience at the time you first saw this well he didn't see this part though (laughs) exactly i don't know that somebody my age would even tolerate this movie enough to get to the ape that's what i'm saying this is very 70s we're just gonna have a lot of people standing around talking it's got that 70s slow pace i'm exposing myself like i guess i'm just that 70s slow pace guy i'm not saying that's a good or a bad thing i'm just saying that's a thing of the 70s 
I've always liked the buildup of Kong. I talked about it with 1933 even. I don't mind that it takes 45 minutes. I don't think that the movie is all about the ape. I think some of it is about enjoying the tropes of discovering a mythical island. That just as a concept, the idea that there's something in the fog, all of that just builds an atmosphere and anticipation that I like. I like a slow build. It depends on the payoff, I guess, which we'll have to wait for. Well, whatever I think of the theatrical movie, which I'll save for the end, it is a strong not recommend for the TV version because the hour and 45 minutes of getting to the island is interminable. I watched it in one sitting, but I felt like I needed to walk away from it because I was so bored from the journey there Believe me, it takes a long time to get to the ape in the theatrical cut, too. But after watching the TV cut, it felt downright fleet. Well, an interesting idea that the other Kong, the Universal Kong, had to help with this problem. We'll, we'll label it a problem. It is an issue, anyway, with how long do we delay Kong, was since they were going off the book, they were like, well, we can create our own stuff about what the island was like. They actually had a whole prologue. It wouldn't be a mystery. You would see Kong first. You would see life on the island and Kong on that island. And that was the concept they liked. And at one point they were talking about merging with Dino's movie. And Dino was like, no, there's only one Kong, my Kong. And so they couldn't do that. But I do know some of the thought at the time was that we did need to show the ape up front and just make him the main character. I like the buildup of the mystery. So to me, it's more suspenseful to creep up through the fog to this beach, to the tribe, to the gate. I like that step-by-step process. Yeah, I'm digging kind of the way they're going until Dwan shows up. It is so bizarre. Did the yacht she was on crash because they were all watching porn? Like, were they not paying attention? No, I think it was the storm, but they were all below deck watching Deep Throat. She was the only one who could get to a lifeboat because I guess they were having a circle jerk. (laughs) If you want a 70s Kong, here you go. We got porn in it, Deep Throat. (laughs) I mean, it is kind of great. that. (laughs) No, it is so bizarre. I'm kind of digging it. I kind of love the fact that she just floats in. Like, there is something surreal about it, and since this movie is going to take many more surreal turns later, it kind of eases us in to the absurdity of it all. And so the fact that, yeah, she is not of this mission, and Jeff Bridges' character is not of this mission, but that they've kind of glommed on to it, that you have the oil mission, and then you have the paleontologist, and then you have this woman that just wants to be a star, and all their destinies kind of get wrapped up in this mythical island to me it makes it more fun the only thing i wish i could see and arnie i'm guessing it's not in the extended cut is the storm destroy that other boat or establish that maybe kong destroyed the boat i mean it's unsatisfying to be like oh yeah there was some other boat and we know because she's carrying a book of matches like i want to see the boat blow up and i think that might have helped maybe some people be more excited in this beginning yeah there's nothing I don't think they ever even cast other people on that boat. The whole thing is Dwan floats in. But I'll say, before we get to Dwan, there are a lot of people on this boat that do help me stay interested. You know, the main one is probably Rene Arbogenois, who I know primarily from Benson. He would do that in the 80s, and then he'd go on to do Star Trek Deep Space Nine as Odo and... At this point in his career, he was doing a lot of Robert Altman early 70s movies. He was a character actor that you would recognize from M.A.S.H. or McCabe and Mrs. Miller. In addition to knowing who the actor is, I like his character here as this chemist for the oil company. He's like a scientist, but unlike Jack, 
He's a scientist who's motivated to find oil and wants there to be oil and is almost as hungry for it as Charles Grodin's Fred. And yet he'll have some funny comic relief once he finally gets some samples of this stuff. But I agree. I didn't see the value of him or many of these characters at first, but he will get a really big laugh later. And then we also have the captain of the boat who is going to not really matter, but you got John Randolph here, character actor, seen him in a billion things. Christmas Vacation is my go-to, but so many things he's been in, TV and film. And he's amusing here where he's trying to tell Fred, we don't want to go out now, there's a bad storm. And then when they're in the middle of the storm, he's enticing Fred to puke from seasickness as he just laughs it off. I wish that they had arcs. I wish that they weren't just funny bits here at the beginning, this captain. I feel like there was real room to do something very different in the middle of this movie, since they weren't going to do dinosaurs. And it could be maybe a little bit more hard to catch Kong. You could play with a little bit more of that and include these characters in ways. I agree with you. These character actors are good, but they don't make much of an impression. Yeah, if this really was a disaster movie, that's the whole thing. You have a bunch of different characters, and they all have their little problems and arcs that they go through here it's got that vibe of a disaster movie but it doesn't have that trope that's missing here and yeah i agree because i do kind of like this setting as slow as this is going like i yeah roy this wacky scientist and fred like i like these characters i like watching them it's taken a long time to get to the big ape but they're entertaining me on this journey yeah that's the thing is i agree with what you're saying Stuart. it would be nice if they had stuff to do with Kong, and that would mean getting to the island earlier and spending less time. I'm grasping onto what I can for entertainment here because the boat ride there is long. I agree with what you've said. I like the piercing of the fog, the exploration of the island. That's suspense that could have been drawn out. There's not a whole lot of suspense. You know, getting there is not half the fun. When you set sail from America and have to go all the way till you're near Singapore, all of this time spent on the boat with Fred arresting Jack and accusing Jack of being from a competitive oil company when Jack's a, I don't even know to this day. I watched this movie twice. Why is Jack there? He's just a... He wants to get pictures of monkeys. He's a primate expert. In the original script, he had been there in the Vatican and got this librarian and they had gone. This ship had bought the map rather than from a I think they just say they bought it in some Indonesian shop they bought their map or stole their map from the Vatican so he was chasing them from those secret archives to this dock but in this movie that we got in the final filmed form he just is like the Indiana Jones of paleontologist he's going to sneak aboard a boat to try to find this mythical primate yeah primate paleontologist like that's really like micro specific I can believe Princeton like might fund a paleontologist to go to Indonesia but a primate one and they're betting that there's an ape there what if it ended up being a lizard what if it was Godzilla (laughs) I have to go get another one I don't even think they bankrolled him. I mean, if you're being bankrolled, you're not stowing away and hanging from a rope to sneak on board. He had a big fat role when he bribed that Indonesian guard to get onto the shipyard, or maybe their currency is just different than ours and it looked like a lot. Oh, he's just, you know, all that fat PhD money. Maybe he can (laughs) use Dwan's 
Petrock's credit card. She mentions the way that she talks herself into the mission is that, hey, I have a credit card for your gas company that has 18% interest. You're reminded of the fact that it was actually really hard to get a credit card in the 1970s. They didn't give them out like they do now. Now they want you to be in debt. They love the fact that you don't have the money to pay it. But back then, you had to have a certain status. And so, yes, she is doing whatever she can to join this mission because her horoscope said that she was going to meet the biggest person in her life when she crossed over water. There's some fun, ironic lines like early on when they're getting those pipes ready. They're like, here's to the big one. Ah, I see what you did there. And yeah, she's going to meet the biggest person of her life. And then there's also one Fred says, hey, we don't want to get eaten alive. Get the mosquito spray, which is a funny joke. But I'm like, oh, yeah, we're going to see people get eaten alive by like dinosaurs and stuff, which nope, that doesn't happen. I hear what you're saying about pace in this movie, but it's for me, it is never this beginning. It is the middle of the movie. It is when the original film got good that this movie sags. Up until the reveal of Kong, I love every decision, really. I like this film a lot. You like that they introduce and spend time with all these characters that go nowhere? I do, until I find out they're going nowhere in the middle of the movie, yes. But in retrospect, do you feel this is time well spent? Am I satisfied with the fact that they don't have an ending for these characters? No, of course not. But my solution is not cut all of this at the beginning. It's fix the middle. But with the movie we have, if you were sitting in the editing bay... I would say this first part is great. Don't touch it. But you know there's no payoff film. It's still good. It's the best part of the film. It is absolutely the best part of the film. The creep up to Kong is way better than Kong's rampage. All right. The creep up to Kong, yes, but... This bit with everything is the creep up to Kong, Arnie. I'm saying 45 minutes from docks to gate is the best part of the film. I mean, Arnie, what do you want us to do? Just watch the second half like you did as a kid? I mean, just come in at the end? Yes. Uh, see, I think this is the most entertaining stuff. I was in full recommend mode for the first 45 minutes. Yeah, and it's beautiful, too. I mean, they went to Hawaii. They had this heavy production value. This film was nominated for Best Cinematography and deserved it. I mean, it looks gorgeous here when they're landing and exploring. Yeah, I'm just captivated by all of that. I'm not missing the black and white old aesthetic. I feel they've reinterpreted all of that for a 70s sensibility. I like these characters. I like where they are. And I know where we're headed, so I'm excited. You like Dwan? I pretty much do. I like the idea that they've kept her a ditzy actress, and I like the fact that her destiny seems to have nothing to do with the mission that's going there, but that she ends up becoming the focal point for the oil company is amusing. I will say, when I turned against Dwan is when she just runs off. She's like, a waterfall! And just, like, runs off on this uncharted <laughs> island. Who knows what dangers there are? Jeff Bridges got to go chase her down. He's like, don't do that. Like, that's, Dwan, come on. You, you got to have some common sense here. Okay, here's some editing choice they could have made. We get it. All the sailors are smitten with her. There's this long <laughs> montage where, like, I'll read books to you. I'll help you fish. I'll watch you take showers. Yeah, like, no, we get it. That she's hot. And they all like her. She's playing that. When she's running around in the waterfalls, she's posing for the pictures. And if they had written this more like she's just trying to get famous and like she's hoping to sell those pictures later, it's implied there. It's subtext. But they could have done more in showing this character as an opportunist, get rich, get famous by any means necessary. Yeah, what they actually played up in the TV version, they even slowed down that montage. One of the people on the boat is actor Dennis Fimple, who is Grandpa from House of a Thousand Corpses. 
Yes, he was working as starfish on this boat, and he's being held upside down by his ankles, peeping on Dwan as she's getting out of the shower. That shower scene that we see in the montage, he's watching from the port window, and Jack comes upon them and embarrasses them and makes them fall in the water. I'm assuming they get saved. I didn't see them again later. Maybe Jack murdered them both, but... I believe they're the ones crossing the log, and Kong shakes them off. But, you know, it's helpful to see that this woman has the same effect on all males. It helps us understand why she has the impact she does on Kong. And, yeah, Jessica Lang, this isn't one that she should win a trophy for, but I think she's charming and fresh and sexy, and, and yeah, she's good in this movie. She is very sexy. In addition to adding a whole lot for network television, they cut a whole lot. The nipple was nowhere near as visible in the TV version. Now, maybe that was the Betamax tape, but when I'm watching this on high definition, I'm like, wow, that is a sheer black dress they find her in. And there's added scenes about this was not in the TV version where the sailors are like, well, I have to undress her to make sure she's healthy. They didn't keep any of that in. Yeah, I just wish that she was written with a little bit more edge. I mean, I get it. I get that there's a calculation. There was a reason why she was on that Hollywood boat that she eventually admits, yeah, they promised me a movie in Hong Kong, but they were probably lying and just probably wanted me to do an orgy while they watched Deep Throat. I mean, I think all of that is an interesting subject that the adults watching this movie are going to enjoy, while, yes, maybe your kids are going to be fidgeting and wondering where the monkey is. I read this... Thing, I think it was IMDb Trivia, where somebody has theorized that Dwan was being taken to star in a porn, and Harry that she was talking about was Harry Reams, 70s porn star, and mm-hmm. that's why they were all watching Deep Throat. Yeah, I'm sure that someone had a Harry in mind when they wrote that line, but I didn't know that Harry Reams was a 70s porn star. But yeah, you get what boat she was on, and if it didn't blow up, she might have had a much more difficult time than she does with this ape, actually. But I do love her line. She's like, my life was saved by a movie. (laughs) Do you know anyone whose life was saved by Deep Throat? (laughs) (laughs) Which was a huge box office hit at this time. Like everyone knew what that was. Even if you didn't go see porn, everyone knew about Deep Throat. Yeah, because of Nixon, right? (laughs) It was, uh, well, eh, maybe, maybe. At any rate, we're seeing what we saw before, but did they fix the tribe? We were all a little uncomfortable with the racial politics of that. I feel like they're almost minimized here. I can't get offended because we barely spend any time with the chief or see what they're doing here in the ceremony. I'm not going to be offended by this. I imagine that there is still something offensive by having African Americans portrayed as tribal. It goes back to, again, the stereotypes of the cannibals that we talked about from Gilligan's Island episodes and things. And when they're wearing those dresses that make them look like, I don't know, anthropomorphized corn husks. They look like Pac-Man ghosts or something. Yeah, I like those. I like the costumes in this. I know. I was waiting for Pac-Man. I'm like, is this the inspiration? (laughs) It's interesting. When they bring out the woman, they give her a veil and it's blonde. I was like, oh, that's a nice. It's the same material, that same grass material that the ghosts are wearing. But it also indicates that Kong already has a type and she needs to be blonde. And so when they actually see Dwan, they're like, hey, we'll trade you six of ours for her. How would they even know 
what a blonde is. There's none on the island. <laughs> well, no, but they figured through costuming what makes this woman most appealing to... I mean, I don't even know what he's going to do with her. Is it clear? Yeah, they never explain what Kong is doing with all these brides that they're offering up. Like, why are they offering them brides? You know, I read a short story. There is a science fiction writer named Philip Jose Farmer. He wrote in 1973 after King Kong fell. It's really interesting. It's short. You can find it out there on the internet. It's about an old man watching King Kong 1933 on TV with his granddaughter and explaining that this was a dramatization of things that really happened in New York. There was a King Kong. All these people that the actors are playing were real. And he tells their sad story. And one of the things that he mentions is the sailor never got with Fay Ray's character because Kong sexually assaulted her. And the story explains in graphic detail that giant apes would still have small genitalia. Gorillas do have the smallest uh, in proportion to their body size. Yes, gorillas have tiny penises. Yes, there's a whole paragraph about that. I learned a lot. I was like, oh. But the point was, it was big enough to do permanent damage. She couldn't have kids. And so this man that supposedly looks like he's saving her in this movie ends up rejecting her and she dies a spinster. So it's all of that. You know, they have also Carl Denham has a really sad ending as well. But it's an interesting short little story. But that reading colored my perspective this time when I thought about Kong Brides. I was like, huh. Well, Fred is going to claim that Kong raped her. Wanted to rape her. Did he really? That's what they say. Oh, I did hear that line. And again, this is a PG movie. They're not, they don't need to, and they don't go there exactly. I'm just saying I didn't give a full consideration about what Kong might have wanted to do on his wedding night. And now I can't not see that. Yeah, because Jack says uh, they're herbivores. He's not going to eat her. Right. So that is in my mind when they're talking about Dwan, and she has the same arc here as Fay Ray of they scare off the natives, she goes back to the boat, but of course they come for her and take her and dress her in shells. Seeing this a second time makes me wonder, what would the tribesmen have done had she been not on the edge of the boat? Were they going to infiltrate the boat? Were they going to storm the boat? Yes. That's what they did in the 33 one. I, I mean, I don't I don't think that even needs speculation. They were going to get that woman at all costs, and they were just lucky enough that, yes, she's positioned waiting for them as Jack was preparing to ride off, and he's frustrated. They've had a scene where he is the one thinking about their concerns. In the way that they try to humanize the natives, they have him as their white savior. He's always the one saying, well, you know, we can't set charges and blow up their island. They live here. It's not yours just because you stake a Petrox flag on it. And so in some ways, that's how they humanize the people of Skull Island. Yeah, and she's going to seduce Jack. He's going to delay his voyage to hook up with her. And she had basically fallen for him the moment she found out he's the one who spotted her raft and saved her life. I wonder, is her love for him legit, or does she just like him because he's taking pictures of her? Keep in mind, her real love is to be famous. And so, is it the camera, or is it Jack? Again, a sharper, more cynical movie would explore that a little deeper. Yeah, I, we'll get a little bit at the end when they go their separate ways. When it comes to the showcasing of Kong, Jack doesn't want anything to do with it. And she does. She wants that fame. But is that why she's with Jack? Because he's got a camera. Here we are, Arnie. I know 53 minutes is long. 
I agree. It's a little long. I guess all I'm saying is I like buildup. So I recognize it's long, but I don't resent it for being long. I'm wondering how it's going to go. I actually think these shots here where we see the POV of the trees falling, the tracking shot as Dwan is tied there, like all that anticipation. I'm more into this moment than I was with 1933. And then we see a guy in an ape suit. And it is revolutionary blue screen technology, but it is a man in an ape suit. Oh, you could tell it's blue screen. Like you could see the, you know, they still got the outlines around them. Yeah, it's rough by today's standards. It's not that bad. I mean, I'm the special effects snob. Right. And the majority of it, I would say three quarters of the effects work, work better than I expected it to. Yes, there are some matte shots that are really, really bad in this. The worst one is probably when Kong wakes up and you see Dwan asleep in the background. That one was really, really bad. My biggest complaint, though, isn't every so often there's a bad blue screen shot. It's that... You got Rick Baker in a gorilla suit, and the gorilla suit's magnificent. The amount of facial articulation, at times when they did close-ups of the face, I forgot it was a suit. I mean, it has that much movement. Yeah, the face is great. And again, that was the thing Rick Baker contributed, because Carlo Rimbaldi was off building the robot, and nobody thought those robotics were going to work. And it was Baker that was like, you know what, I don't want to put prosthetics on my face. I want to take some of your robotics and see if we can meld that here. It works. But his body language is not that of a simian, is not of an ape. He's walking upright like a man. That's been the case with all these King Kongs, and the older ones, they are what they are, but I've seen the Peter Jackson one, he's going to go full gorilla in that, where, you know, Andy Serkis is going to move like an actual ape, and you're taking away the quaintness of the stop motion, and we've seen the suits with those Japanese films that I enjoyed, but they were crappy looking suits, and that was part of the charm there. Here, yeah, it's just like someone showed up to the Halloween party in a gorilla suit, and yeah, the face is great, the way it moves, but there's not that sense of magic that I felt before with Kong. I think that's exactly it. It doesn't feel special. After Planet of the Apes and 2001, we had seen people put on ape suits that were, you know, varying in quality. They got better from King Kong versus Godzilla at any rate. And so, yeah, it's just not special. And I'm not advocating, Arnie, that we should do stop motion here. I'm just saying that if this is supposed to be the same impact that seeing stop motion Kong was in 1933, they didn't get there. See, and I think that what it has over 2001's apes and Planet of the Apes apes is the size. I mean, in addition to that really well-articulated face, they're smart to not try to do too much superimposing, and that's where that giant arm comes in. And the giant arm is a practical effect. And so there's nothing that it doesn't do that I feel looks 100%. And I'm surprised Jessica Lang. I mean, she was much like her character. She wanted to be famous. This was her first movie, her first credited screen role. So yeah, you want this drone arm to pick me up? All right, I guess I'll let it pick me up. But I'd be a little worried about the controller tightening the fist too much or not enough, and I go for a fall. What I'm saying is, I can accept this. It isn't blowing me away, but I'm like, all right, if this is Kong, we've seen worse. And so I'm going to go with this Kong, and yeah, I understand blue screen has gotten better, and, and I will forgive the process shots that aren't so good, 
But what I can't forgive is the fact that when she's, I don't know, negotiating with him, flirting with him, treating him like another director that wants to cast her in a porn movie, I feel like if the idea what that we're making a romantic Kong, that's kind of flopping for me. There's lines she delivers that I like, like when she talks about she's afraid of heights because she's stuck in an elevator in the Empire State Building. Ah, I see what she did there, but a clever little line. That was funny. But when she calls him like a chauvinist pig ape, uh, very 70s, and yeah, that's just weird. But it was, I think it's intended to be funny. I took it as attempting to be funny. I don't think it worked. But back then in the 70s, much like saying, what's your sign? Yeah, she asked the monkey its sign in this movie. What, again, to go back to what I think you said, Stuart, how many brides has he offered? How often? Where are these other brides? What has happened to them? Right. If I'm to take what's inferenced and what's in my head from that short story, Kong has his way with his bride and till death do them part is the guess where I would leave that. And so love them and leave them is this ape's modus operandi, very 70s. And so he's going back to the singles bar that the natives are running. And this is just supposed to be another one night stand with Duan. Think of Beauty and the Beast. Remember, even in that cartoon, like they meet Scary and then like she's shortly brushing his hair and dressing him in a nice suit and they're waltzing around the ballroom. That's what I'm talking about not working here. When she falls in a mud puddle and then he bathes her in the waterfall and... I think we're supposed to think in these moments she's falling for him. Yeah, I. she seems awfully comfortable. And then Dwan is stupid, right? I mean, I think that's what we're supposed to take. So I could go with her thinking that Kong might understand her when she's like, this is never going to work. Meanwhile, he's pulling her top off. That was a risque scene. Yeah, I was waiting for him to sniff his finger like in the 33 one. He doesn't do that, but yeah, he takes her top down. I don't know if she's dumb or opportunistic. And again, I mean, if you think about the fact that she's dealt with hairy gorillas that have put her in compromising positions before on yachts, casting her in porns, She's just treating this like another job on the road to being famous. And that's kind of funny. Again, if we had more of her talking about what she was doing, I would enjoy it. But if we're expected to think what I think the movie's asking us and what Dino asked us, that she legitimately will grow to love this ape. Like, it becomes more clear to me later when he's in the ship going back and she voluntarily goes to see him. That's the stuff I can't buy. I don't know if I put that on Lang or the gorilla suit or the writing or what, but all I can tell you is I'm not buying any of that. I take it as she's trying to assuage him, but she's not making enough attempts to escape that I would think that any human would. I mean, it's just a survival instinct. If I grab a rabbit, that rabbit is going to try to escape at all costs. It's not going to try to talk me down. And at this point, she has no aspirations for a stage show in Queens. Like, we cut back and we see that the Charles Grodin oil executive has gotten the samples back and that geologist that we're all laughing about is like, yeah, it just needs a little bit more aging. 10,000 <laughs> years. And so they're having to come up with a new way to make money because this all of this smoke is not going to lead to gasoline. Yeah, so plan B, mascot. 
Like, Exxon's got their tiger. We're going to have a giant ape. I love that. I don't know if you're being serious or not. I actually love... No, no, it does take me back to Kong versus Godzilla. And I, I like the satire in there with that pharmaceutical company. So, yeah, I'm laughing. It's, it's a weird way to go, but I'm digging it at the same time. I'm trying to imagine being his boss at the gas company where he comes back. Well, I don't have oil, but I have a big gorilla. His boss loved it. They're going to make Kong a giant crown. (laughs) At what point does the petroleum company decide they want to diversify into entertainment? It's almost like an early version of Disney. We're going to own all the sporting teams and networks and all the entertainment. I mean, it's like we're going to be gas and we're going to have a traveling road show sponsored by the gas. Not only that, but when you get to the gas pump, you're not going to pump the one with the gorilla on it. You're going to pump the one that isn't empty. And they're all <laughs> empty, by the way, because no one's finding the mother load. But hey, at least you can look at a giant ape while you're waiting in line. There, there's a selling point. I would want it as a kid. Like if the choice was, do we want to go to golf or the one with the ape, the cartoon character? It's the... Frankly, it's the reason why McDonald's came up with the clown. They're like, we know that you're going to pick this over Hardee's. So, yes, it has a primal appeal to children. This movie is trying to have a similar appeal. And so I just kind of go with the wonky logic of it. And what else is he going to do? He staked everything on the fact that this island was his future. And if they got gorillas and not oil, then we go with gorillas. I get it in a weird way. So he starts calculating a way to trap this Ape, which I think they could have played with a lot longer. I think it would have been fun to see people strategize, how do we get an ape on a boat? I mean, I think that's something the first movie made very easy with a couple gas bombs that this movie could take its time with and have more exciting things than Jeff Bridges falling off a log. Like, that stuff is like yawn. And I enjoy it enough. I mean, I like seeing the... I mean, it's bad special effects, but that didn't stop me from enjoying the exact same special effect in Temple of Doom when people are falling off the bridge. I like that Kong is fighting against those people, but... You think this is as good? Uh, This is the only fight, though. Like, and we saw this in the 33 one where he shakes a log that's fallen down and it's like a bridge and just shake everyone off into the ravine below and they die. And like, that's it. That is the action scene. Again, there's a snake, I guess. Maybe that's an action scene, but there's no dinosaurs. There's no sea serpents. It is just them getting shaken off a log. Yeah, I love Temple of Doom. This ain't no Temple of Doom. Like, there's no way that this log scene replicates any of that enjoyment. I'm merely talking about the quality of special effects of somebody falling down the ravine. Well, they actually built that bridge and and shot some of that on location. And here it's pretty obvious that the mechanical gorilla arm was not going to go up on that crevice. (laughs) And so composite shots that aren't great. And Jack is doing this all for Dwan because, well, she's a person in need and he is a humanitarian. And I don't know, is he trying to protect Kong in any way? I mean, he is here as the primatologist. Is he trying to study Kong? He doesn't want to kill him. I get that much. But it seems weird that he's more fixated on the girl than what he snuck on the boat for. Whatever he's there to do, he never accomplishes, I don't feel. But by the same token, I'm glad he's more interested in saving a human life than studying and being all about the science and who cares what happens to the bimbo. 
I think that would have been more fun. I mean, again, if these characters were more individualistic, that he was more of a nerd, and maybe made the choice of getting an ape picture rather than rescuer right away. All of that stuff could have made this movie funnier, more exciting, complicated the relationships, and made this middle part something you'd want to watch. Because I hate this movie for this 20-minute stretch. Oh, wow. I still find it better than the 20 minutes on the boat in the middle. The snake and the log, really? Because, ooh, it's bad. Yeah, that all the snake. I didn't like the snake in the first one. Don't do it here. This snake is abysmal. Here's the most damning thing I can say. It is below the standards of the bad special effects of this movie to have that snake. Even on the beta film, I could tell that snake looked plastic as hell and didn't move right. Did they just cheap out on the snake? Did they spend all the money on the robot gorilla that didn't work? And when it came time for a snake, they just went to a party favor store and said this one's a puppet? Yeah, I mean, obviously the focus is on convincing us Kong is real. But you could convince us Kong is real by believing that the snake is also real <laughs> yes. and that he is in a real environment. Hey, you're not going to hear me defend this snake. It's <laughs> I, Again, I don't think you even need it. It was a cheap thing that... Frankly, there had been so much action in the middle of Kong 1933, you didn't need a snake to be thrown in this mix. This movie needs an action scene, it's just not delivering them. And so where I'm saying you could find the fun is in these characters scrambling around to either save the girl, or study the ape, or capture the ape. Yeah, if they had developed these characters that I kind of liked and they had you know their little moments as they went to go rescue Dwan I would have been entertained but they were dispensed of so quickly and then were given this snake I do wonder if they had more time and keep in mind someone had to write the script really fast and then they just had to shoot it no questions asked because they thought Universal was going to step on their opening weekend so again if they had taken another six months to really think about what they were doing here but this was the early stuff that they shot and then they were just sort of beholden to it for the rest of the shoot by when they moved on to back to Hollywood and New York. Yeah, I feel like they needed a battle there. Again, I mentioned when we reviewed Kong 33, I never had even thought of a dinosaur being on that island. But if there's giant gorillas, then I can also believe in giant snakes. I can't believe in this giant snake, but that there would be giant snakes. And I want to see Kong fight and win a battle. If he didn't fight the snake, Kong is a born loser who will lose every fight he's in. And that was very much a mandate. I think Dino was big on it. Kong is a lover, not a fighter. Even when he gets to New York, you don't see him causing the mass hurt the way that Kong 33 would like bite heads off. You know, and like that ape, he was mad. He was mad and he didn't care who he took it out on. This one, they were very concerned that kids always liked him. So I feel like, aside from one woman on a subway car, there's no collateral damage. Can I give Dino a little bit of advice? If I'm a child, you know how I'll like Kong? If he fights a dinosaur. (laughs) And again, I think budget. I think the other production. I think being set on the had to open at Christmas 1976. All of that stuff just meant they had to make it about the relationship between Dwan, the ape, and the others. But they're not even doing that well, is what I'm arguing here. I wish that that stuff was better if that's the movie. I kind of blame Jessica Lange for this. I think that she's appropriately sexy, but I just 
think her performance in this movie is extraordinarily one note, whether it's realizing you're the only survivor of a shipwreck, trying to seduce a paleontologist, or trying to escape a giant gorilla. She's given the same line readings every time. I'd like to have seen more from the tribesmen. I mean, remember last time they were getting stomped on, they were throwing spears. They just go away here. And it will be for Jeff Bridges to keep saying, you're stealing their god, this is so terrible. I would have liked to hear more from them. Yeah, they're going to turn into drunks. Somehow they're going to invent alcohol because they have no more god to worship, which that is bizarre. Again, this is the 70s. I feel like it should be more nihilistic, but saying, oh, we're going to become drunks if you don't believe in God. I just have to believe that if someone other than Dino De Laurentiis was doing this, they would be making more of these cynical choices. And I think they capture Kong a little too easily. I did like the supply drop. I thought that was cool looking. I wasn't sure how they pulled that off entirely i think it was practical but i'm grooving to the digging of the hole and the fact that they catch him i just am like they catch him way too easily they he falls into a pit and then we see a little bit of dry ice and does the gas just go off uh, someone has a detonator and it makes the barrels fall over the chemical reaction is such that ether or chloroform whatever that emission is we see a giant hand wave for a second and then yeah kong is out and then what i don't know how you get him out of the pit i don't know how you put him in tank number four we'll just fade over and just go with it you know like he gets there somehow did they have this holding cell ready like they didn't know they're gonna find a giant gorilla but there's this huge cargo area. I mean, I guess this is a cargo ship. They're going to fill it up with gas. That's exactly it. These tanks were meant to be filled with petroleum. And yeah, you'll notice they didn't have chains. This monkey has no restraints whatsoever. They weren't prepared for this. Only Jeff Bridges thought that there was going to be Big Beast in the Fog Island. And so here he is waking up, looking depressed, starting to tear his surroundings. And someone has the suggestion, all right, we can't have this. Flood the tank and we'll just kill the ape. And your dreams of a king kong stage show are over and i think even fred was kind of okay with that it's mm-hmm. only duan yeah well i mean if it comes down to we're going to restage the poseidon adventure and this <laughs> this whole thing is going to tip over then yeah i guess we kill the ape and they're going to say that apes aren't good at swimming so the ape would die no matter what i suppose right and so this is where again we're being asked to believe that duan sees something in this creature And I think it's compassion and not opportunism. She hasn't signed the contract that she's going to do the stage show yet. She's climbing down into that tanker to basically just make this ape feel better about himself. Well, she doesn't climb in. She goes to the edge and then he figures out like getting a coconut from a tree. Mm. He bangs the side. She falls in. And oh, is she going to die? No, she is going to survive and be captured by him. No, but she is calling down. Hey, it's your blind date. I mean, there is some affection and she has left the side of Prescott. Jeff Bridges was kissing her, I think, for the first time. And she, her like shawl flew into the tank and that's what kind of set the ape off to begin with. And she chooses, I mean, I guess if the ship's going to (laughs) capsize, you choose to go calm down the ape. But again, I feel like they're doing something more here and Jeff Bridges is Gaston and she's more in love with Beast. I'm glad we have the scene because I said in the 33 one, how'd they get Kong back to the States? Here we at least are shown how he got back to the States, but it's a very brief moment before we're back in New York and this is moving fast. And along the way we find out 
Dwan signed a contract with Fred. There's no extended of scenes of this kind of stuff, Arnie? Not really. There's a few seconds here and a few seconds there, but the biggest changes that I noticed start coming after Kong escapes again. Hmm. Okay, yeah, because this feels like it's all chopped up, like they're throwing back to the 33. Hey, Jack, why don't you marry Dwan? Just like Fay Ray got married in the 33, like, but he doesn't. Jack here has a crisis of conscience or something. It, it just feels very muddled. Like, all of a sudden, we're going to unveil Kong. Yeah, I would have liked to have taken an extra minute or two just to establish why it is the primatologist is signed a contract and then no longer honoring it and donating all of the proceeds to funding Kong's return to Skull Island. All of that stuff was interesting and I feel like deserves a scene or two. But we got a little of it on the boat. You can see he's already arguing against this as Dwan is signing the contract. He's the one saying that it's not right and he's given the chance to back out and not do the contract and Jack clams up he stops talking he also wants the money he is enticed by the fame he goes against his principles on that boat for a chance at spectacle i didn't really see that so maybe that is an added beat no i definitely saw it in the theatrical cut where on the boat fred comes up to Dwan and starts talking about jack it's when he says is there any chance of you two kids getting married and we have kong give away the bride okay yeah i picked up more on that that he was trying to turn the love story of all of this into part of the show and the show yeah they're gonna do something a little different they don't stick him in a 42nd street theater they're going to actually kind of make the docks of queens or maybe it's a city park into some kind of arena so that Kong could come out in a giant gas pump. I love it. I do. And this is where we get the giant robot. These are actual sized people. They didn't blue screen this stuff. Those are real people standing at the foot of a giant robotic ape. I was hoping there would be a reference to the chrome steel, but there's no chrome steel. <laughs> yeah, it's New York approved steel. That's going to hold him, I guess. But yeah, the fact that he comes out, you know, with this giant cardboard oil pump over him, it is a great visual and then they pull that off. He's got a crown. I wish he had that crown for the rest of the film, but that's going to fall off. But as bored as I was, like when I saw that giant oil pump being brought out with Kong inside, I perked back up. Yeah, it's funny. And, and, and even then, you know, here is Wilson promising everyone, oh, this cage is escape proof. Nothing can get out of this as the ape is like, clank, clank. <laughs> it's not even a challenge for Kong. <laughs> yeah, he's like, really? Want to say that again? They've changed something. I know that they had an opportunity to screen test this movie once. And because the audience that watched it in Denver didn't like the original ending, I'm wondering if it was restored for television, Arnie. They actually had this character live. Fred? He goes to his big boss, and we get a little bit about how the big boss is unhappy about getting an ape, and then the ape escaping, and he's fired, and he's blackballed from the industry. Then we have this scene here where Kong appears to step on him, but you'll find out he only stepped on his hat. And this guy escaped, and he says something to the effect of, I'd rather be dead than 
to not have my job or I don't know. They they apply it was harder for him to live knowing all the destruction he caused than to be squashed underfoot of an ape. What they have in the TV cut is there's a shot of a boss looking guy in the stands screaming, Fred, you're finished. So okay. we take it that it's his boss. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. And then we see him get stepped on by Kong anyway. Mm-hmm. And then when Kong removes his foot, we see a hat. But the implication is that the rest of him's under Kong's foot. Just yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah, there was some shot, and the audience has said, no, villain, kill him. There was a shot of Charles Grodin watching the ape walk away from this arena and then just dejected, kind of sauntering away. Kind of like the guy that invented Cuesta Verde's suburbia and poltergeist, like, lives to watch it all get sucked into the sinkhole. Like, he has a moment of realizing my dream has turned to tragedy. I found it funny. I thought maybe they left the hat in the TV version when I was a kid, you know, four years old. That's hysterical to me to think he just got pushed into the ground and all that's left is the hat. But now I'm like, did they leave that in for comedic effect? I was I was very shocked during the theatrical cut, which is more gory from this point on and more violent. The mm. TV cut a lot of the violence out. Really? Because not a whole lot of violence here. Uh, there's blood. I feel like when the helicopters come, there's blood. Oh, see, I felt this was like way tamer than the 33 one. Then- Kong pick a woman up out of the subway car, go, not her, and <laughs> chuck her away. Yeah. 33 when he just chucks that woman who he thought was Faye Ray. Like, it was horrific the way it was filmed here. You don't even see her hit the ground and she just falls behind like a elevated train or something. I'm sorry, but the way he flings her, I take that as harsh. But I was surprised when Kong stepped on Fred that we didn't see a bloody pulp in the PG version, but it's a weird cut. The way that it cuts in the movie made me wonder if maybe it was too harsh for a PG and they cut away. Why did they cut away? But in the TV version, it's a hat. So yeah, it's all kind of strange that it's all around. In the TV version, they got to make this longer. Is there any more to this rampage than just taking out an elevated train? Because this was another disappointment. There's a lack of other monsters for him to fight. And he smashes a train and that's about it. Well, I mean, there wasn't that much more in 1933, just to put it out there. The train was a last minute addition. They It almost didn't make the final cut. But I hear what you're saying. If we can have a rampage. If you're not going to give me dinosaurs, give me a rampage. Two things. Most expensive movie of all time and we haven't even begun on those models and two dino does not want people to perceive his kong as being someone that would hurt people unnecessarily he is just trying to find his woman and he's not trying to kill yeah again a few seconds here a few seconds there this rampage is longer the biggest addition is at one point a car kind of gets in kong's way and he picks it up and smashes it into a building and it explodes but I agree with you. We really got it in the tribal scene. When when Kong like crushes all those huts in the 1933 movie, we got our rocks off on that. That was the destruction, that Godzilla movie quality that I really like to see in giant monster movies. And this movie backs away from that. I will say I'm more engaged, though. I didn't like the middle of this movie, but now that we've left the island and we're having the jokes about Petrox oil and we're getting some kind of thrills here, I'm at least engaged again. I feel like, okay, I want to see how he's going to get up to a new location here. We will find out that 
and I don't remember this from when he was actually on the island, there were two twin towers of stone? Well, they showed, yeah, like these mountains that had two peaks. It doesn't look like the World Trade Center at all, though. Like, that is quite a leap that Jack is going to make in its logic that that's where Kong is going to go. Yeah, there's no even mountain with a skull on it. Like, I, I don't think it's Skull Island because there was, there was no skull, but it was more like Twin Towers Island. <laughs> I don't remember that shot. But for whatever reason, it is for the primate scientist to realize, I know where he's going. I need to tell someone. They also cut something else from this that the test audiences didn't like. He turns to Duan, who has insisted, rather than go hide in an underground bunker, why don't we just go to hide in this underground bar? She asked him, and this is in the cut, are we still getting married? Were you serious about that offer that you love me? And they cut this out that he says, I will only marry you if Kong lives. If that ape dies, there's no way that I could forgive you for what's happened. Ah, he's holding Dwan responsible? Well, she signed the contract. He does offer, you know, come away with me. And they caught the ape. They were going to do that whole dog and pony show regardless. You have to believe the idea that they wouldn't do it without the leading lady. That she is as much an attraction as Kong, which, eh, you know, maybe, maybe not. But I get where he's coming from. And, you know, it's also true of, like, couples that lose kids or something. Like, if you have a tragedy in your relationship, it's kind of hard to move beyond that. You know, like, it's hard not to think about that time that the ape grabbed you, took you to the (laughs) building, and then fell off. Like, maybe you don't want that to color your relationship. So, anyway, they built into the idea that this love story was completely doomed. Not only does it not work out between Duan and Kong, it will not work out between Prescott and Duan. Yeah, and that really hit me hard this time is, you know, that's kind of a bitter ending here at the end. I was surprised when I watched it the first time, again, muddy videotape, I'm like, did he just leave her out to dry? And watching it in the high depth, I'm like, damn, that is cold. But how does Kong find Dwan? Like, they're at an underground bar, they're at Cheers or something, I guess that's in Boston, but Kong is just, like, walking down the street, there's a curfew so no one's out, and he, I don't know, does he sniff her out? Yes, I because they show the prosthetic head, nostrils flare, he sniffs, sniffs. I think that's how he found her on the train. So I just take it to mean that he knows her scent and he can track her. And he's even willing to get into the East River and wade over there because we're told, yeah, gorillas don't swim, but he'll do it for her. I love the look on his face in that window as he's reaching in. He's like, I found you (laughs) i agree it's actually reminds me of cute kong from the japanese years i'm just like oh you're charming and how exactly does an arm bend like that though where it has to go down a half flight of stairs and then in and around does he have like five joints yeah it's silly Uh, but again this movie if they're wanting me to feel doomed love story that's tearing my heart apart and I cry, sorry, Dino, I'm not crying. But I do feel like we're reaching the ending that I wanted. And it's okay. I, I think you're right. I think we wanted to see more churches and people caught up in the, the wreckage. But Twin Towers was a good idea. That was something that Dino insisted on. The other movie was going to do the Empire State Building. That had already been done before. We got to do something new. And yeah, the World Trade Center was only a couple years old at this point. So it would have been the hot new thing on the landscape to explore. Kong grabs a helicopter and throws it into the other tower. 
That's a good shot. What about the flamethrowers? I do love, like, they come out with flamethrowers to get Kong, and then he just jumps to the other tower. The blood gushing out of his chest. That's the one thing that I'm like, wow, that's kind of heavy. For a PG, even, that's... Mm, this is getting into that King Kong escapes territory with Madame Piranha bleeding out. Like, this is too violent for children. Well, it is an ape, and it's a guy in an ape suit. The MPAA is probably more forgiving, and it's not that red of blood because it's against a black suit. But, man, as a kid, every bullet that pierced him pierced my heart. Sure. I think you need to retain that. If they ever make a Kong movie where he's so savage in his destruction that you cheer his death... They've done it wrong. It has to be that we made the mistake of thinking this wild animal could handle our civilization. For some reason, I was getting Vietnam parallels, too, that we were sending in our military might to kill the savage from the jungle when we never should have gone into that jungle to begin with. Yeah, the way they zoom in on those machine guns on the helicopters, it does feel very violent. What I want to know is, was the mayor snowing Jeff Bridges? Because Jeff Bridges is like, don't worry, they're bringing nets. I didn't see a single chopper with like a hook, a net, a yellow balloon. There was no other plan other than gun him down and burn him, right? Like that was all like just to placate him. That's how I understood it, yeah. And so it was only going to go this way. Either Kong was going to win or we were going to take him out. And it seems like Dewan is truly sad and even, I would say, puts her own life in danger trying to put herself between the bullets and the ape. This is the one moment I love Jessica Lange in this movie. Other than the moment where she just wakes up and I think she's just charming as hell and hysterical that she's talking about porn right after a life-threatening experience. But here, when she's begging him to pick her up, I actually feel what she's saying unlike all of their flirty this won't work kong kind of stuff here she just wants him to pick her up because they can't shoot him if he's holding her man that i think that drives home the pain of these moments but i feel like ultimately the real tragedy is that she got what she wanted here was a enterprising woman that was going to be famous no matter what had flirted with all kinds of men to put herself in front of the camera, and now every camera is snapping her picture in front of that corpse, and she has to think, again, it would have been extra ironic if we knew that Jeff Bridges was going to dump her, but yeah, all of this came at a cost to her personal life and the tragedy of watching an innocent creature die that loved her. Yeah. Artie, you might be crying, you might be feeling for King Kong at this point. To me, look, it is melodramatic, but it, it, not in a good way for me. This is like, really, you expect me to have these emotions as people crowd around Kong? I, it, it didn't work for me. I mean, I'm not crying. It feels more like the ending of uh, Sunset Boulevard. I don't want to spoil that film. It's really one of the greatest. But when Norma Desmond gets her close up, what it cost her to get in front of those cameras, there's an irony there that I feel plays. I feel like there's a dark spirit to the idea that she has both gotten what she wants and has been ruined. The fact that she's standing there calling out for Jack and Jack won't go to her, Jack won't comfort her, that's where I feel like it is harsh. And the first credit we see here, this is obviously the end of the movie, Carlo Rimbaldi, Rick Baker, Glenn Robinson. This is the only time they're acknowledging all that we just watched were people in suits. Again, everyone that would have watched this movie in 1976 was being told they actually had a 40-foot gorilla that had climbed up the World Trade Center, and they got real helicopters to shoot at it. But 
they downplay Rick Baker, and Rick Baker did most of the work. It is a source of controversy because when the Oscars were talking about visual effects, there was a break-off team, and admittedly, some of these people were working on the Universal King Kong, so maybe they had a reason to be withholding, but they're like, Rick Baker is not a special effect. If you had told me that all of this was puppeteer work, stop motion, we would give you this Oscar, but we're not going to vote for that. And so they broke away. They didn't have enough votes. This thing did get a Best Special Effects Oscar, but not without controversy because, yeah, man in suit. I, I think we'll even be talking about that when we get to Andy Serkis. Is he, is it a performance or is it a special effect? I think here it, it probably is more of a performance. And Dino said, okay, give him a Best Actor Oscar. Like, give him some award. My ape deserves the statue. But does he? Jacob Stewart, do you recommend 1976's King Kong? Jacob. I was actually surprised with how much of this that I did enjoy. I'm not saying I enjoyed the whole thing, but there are things about it that I did enjoy. And it really made me think because there's some things I really don't like about this film. But yeah, the fact that it is so 70s, like that you're asking a giant ape what his sign is. Like, I kind of just like that when he comes out (laughs) as a big oil pump. Yeah, I kind of like that. It's weird. It's goofy. But there's something there that, that appeals to me. And I feel like that you can only get that in a 70s film. Like, we're just standing around talking about animal rights with a giant Kong. And that's also <laughs> the problem with this film, is that it's a 70s film. And for whatever reason, they don't want dinosaurs. They don't want those rampages. You, you've given me reasons why. I disagree with them. Now, if the human drama was so strong that just this backdrop of a giant ape rampaging through New York was just a neat little side thing to all this great human drama, then I wouldn't mind. But they kind of develop characters that I like, but they don't really do anything with them. And it kind of just falls apart for me. And so it's an interesting failure. That's how I put it. Like, you want to see a a giant robot ape with a crown on it dressed as a gasoline pump? This is the movie for you. But it's uneven. It's a weak not recommend, but it is not recommend because I, one, I, I just have certain expectations with the King Kong film. And the human drama here wasn't strong enough to overcome the lack of cool King Kong stuff that I wanted here. So again, weak, not recommend, but yeah, it gets kind of boring at times. Stuart. Yeah, Jacob, I hear what you're saying. I wrestled with it too, but I'm going to go the other way with it. I actually was surprised at how much I did like this movie, even though it is another silly Dino De Laurentiis production that would have been better if it actually... I don't know. You know, he keeps saying that this is Beauty and the Beast and that this is some tragedy. But I think they would have been better off, given what they could do in film at this time, trying to make Jaws. Like, I do feel like if this had been a disaster movie or a suspense piece, I do think that it would have helped some of these pacing problems that are prevalent here. As a love story, eh just not going to work for me and i'm not digging the actors i it's actually enjoyable to see all these stars early in their career they do a good enough job and i feel like sometimes this production has a really great look the score is an improvement from my mind but that's maybe the only thing better about this film from 1933 in the end there's no real reason to see this other than as a footnote it is an interesting take on something that you should see, but uh, I guess that's enough to say mild recommend. Yeah, you mentioned the score. The score in this is absolutely amazing, actually. I just really enjoyed rediscovering that music, and maybe part of it is I remembered it somewhere deep in my memory from being a kid and watching this, but I really do like the score. Do I like the movie? 
I, like both of you, had to wrestle with it, but I think for the exact opposite reason. It's like it took so long to get to the island with all those characters who were enjoyable, but unimportant overall. And it does feel like when we get to New York, there's scenes that just should be there and aren't. I think we could have spent a little less time with all the crewmen on the boat and a little more time leading up to this extravaganza in New York City. You know, it's like once Kong showed up, we had a chase in the jungle, we had a crisis on the boat, and then we had a chase in the city, but it would have been nice to see a little bit more of the setup for the city, and yeah, Jack's crisis of conscience. But I think casting goes a long way for this, even though it took a while to get to the island again, the people who were going I enjoyed watching, and then watching King Kong Rampage, I like the suit. I like the mask. I like the facial expressions. I like Kong smiling when he's looking in the window. I like Kong puffing out his cheeks when he's blow drying Dwan after a shower. <laughs> that shot. Yeah, that was that was a problematic moment for me. So we're <laughs> enjoying different things. I mean, I'm not sure I like the whole shower bit, but it was a good puppeteering effect. Eh, admittedly. So I'm going mild recommend on it. I think it was a decent enough version of a series where, honestly, I mean, yeah, I like the original a lot, but I think this has enough going for it where I think I got the Kongness as a kid. Recommend. Yeah, and, and audiences agree. This thing made money, and, and I do think many people have some place in their heart for this, although it's rare to find anyone argue this is the one they like better or the best. I Maybe the only one that could probably compete with 1933 is Peter Jackson, but we're still a couple weeks away from that one. We got to get to King Kong Lives first. This has been one I've successfully avoided like somebody <laughs> trying to snipe me from a tower i have just dodged this one despite being curious about it when it came out you know i remember the campaign i remember the commercials it was so long I, again i was like king kong was made so long ago is this really a sequel i even remember talking to you about it Stuart. i think you did you see it back then i this is the first king kong movie i ever saw well Maybe King Kong versus Godzilla, but the first one of a time when I was paying attention to how movies were made. And yes, I was aware of when it came out. I was aware of its promotion, and I was uh, aware of how bad it was when I saw it on cable a few months later. Yeah, I remember you telling me a couple of choice things about it, and I just never felt the need to see that King Kong lived through all of these bullets and a giant plummet from the top of the World Trade Center. Yes, let's be clear on this. This is a direct sequel to this. That ape we thought was dead that got shot in the chest. He didn't die. He bled out and they gave him a blood transfusion and a new heart and he will get up again. Where do you get a new heart for a giant ape? Yeah, wait for it. I'm going <laughs> to save some of these joys for you to discover next week. Oh... In the meantime, maybe you might enjoy uh, a different pairing, another sequel, Rush Hour 2. It's going to be available for Platinum donors this Friday. You can find out all the details at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. It's getting down to the wire on our donation series with The Grudge, Zombieland, I Am Legend, and Rush Hour. So if you want to hear these shows, head to our website and find out how to support our show and get up to 40 bonus podcasts. So Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. And to all of our listeners, thank you for listening to Now Playing, the eighth wonder of the world.
home. I think he's had enough of what we call civilization. Thank you for listening to this now playing podcast movie review. It's no use. The show, it's over. It's done. I'm done. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Holy mackerel, what a show. If you enjoyed this show, please tell others. You can help us out by leaving us a five-star review on Stitcher, Podbean, iTunes, or your other podcast store of choice. Word will get out. It always does. Want to hear more reviews like this one? You can find hundreds of other movie reviews at our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Switch it on, like this, and you'll get them by matching. In our archives section are over 800 reviews. Listen to our hosts discuss horror, sci-fi, comedy, action, drama, and more. Plus, you can hear reviews of every movie based on Marvel or DC Comics. Wait till those candy asses in New York hear about this one. A new, totally free movie review podcast is posted every Tuesday. So come back each week for another new show. This island is just the beginning. There's more out there. What do you mean, more? This world never belonged to us. It belonged to them. The question is how long before they take it back. Kong is not the only king. Now Playing relies on listener support to keep operating. You suppose he knew he was saving my life? You suppose he knew he was helping us? Of course not. You want me to believe he was grateful? You can support Now Playing by joining our Podbean crowdfunding campaign. Backers can get early access to reviews, unedited reviews, exclusive shows not available anywhere else, and more. Details are at nowplayingpatron.com. I am a realist, and I need you. So I am going to be generous. I will let you go without a bit of trouble and with lots of cash. At our Podbean site, you can also support the show by listening to any of our donation shows. Series like Planet of the Apes, Jurassic Park, Phantasm, Jaws, and others are available for a small one-time contribution. I'll give you another thousand to leave right now. You haven't given me the first thousand yet. You can also donate to us directly on PayPal. Details can be found by clicking the banner at the top of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Might as well settle up. You pay me? I'm not going to stiff a friend. Want 375 more Now Playing reviews? Get the Now Playing book, Underrated Movies We Recommend. Arnie, Stewart, Jacob, and Marjorie reviewed 125 different movies, each getting three recommends or not recommends. There was still some mystery left in this world, and we could all have a piece of it for the price of an admission ticket. The ebook is available now, and the print book will be shipping soon. Find details at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash book. Well, it better be good after all this valley. You can also follow Now Playing on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. There, the hosts post new episode announcements, movie reviews, and contests, where you can win movies and soundtracks. Also, subscribe to us on YouTube for original video content. She could be hysterical, so come on, follow me. Now Playing Podcast is produced by Arnie Carvalho. I'm someone you can trust. I'm a producer. Believe me, I am on the level. No funny business. Associate produced by Jason Latham. Sure, no, I've been a big help. Now Playing is edited by Stephen, Heath, and Arnie. All hands on deck! Everybody on deck! Everybody on deck! Now playing credits read by Brock. 
I can't tell when I'm talking or when I'm not talking. You're talking. Am I? Yes. I'm talking? Yes. Your mouth is moving. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. If you feel it, you say it. It's really very simple. Venganza Media Incorporated is not affiliated with, and this podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created the film analyzed herein. You can't accuse me. He wasn't there. All movie clips and music included in this podcast are the intellectual property of the respective copyright holders. They are included here for the purpose of review, and no infringement is intended. We must not panic. If there is one thing we cannot afford at this time, it is hysteria. Now Playing Podcast is an exclusive trademark of, and may not be used without the expressed written permission of, Venganza Media Incorporated. You need to listen to us! We're not at war, Colonel. You're making a mistake. Your lies got my men killed. And you're going to get us all killed. Not our fight. Whose side are you on, Captain? Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2020. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. All rights reserved. Why'd he do that? Climb up there and get himself cornered. The ape must have known what was coming. What does it matter? Airplanes got him. It wasn't the airplanes. It was beauty killed the beast. And you can tell I'm a Taurus from the shape of my ears. This is Jacob. Oh, a Taurus. I thought you said a tourist. I did too. No. Actually, you might want to say that again because I was <laughs> okay. like, was that a line in the movie? <laughs> tourist? No, yeah. Taurus. Taurus. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Special effects extravaganzas like that were so new and fresh. The movies really hadn't been doing that kind of epic since Cleopatra bombed in the early 60s that this felt like, wow, we can finally spend a lot of money on films and give it all the Oscars. I just picture somebody about 50 years from now being like, the superhero films, special effects were so new at that time, people were just enthralled. It seems the movies are... You can't watch them now. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely wonder what it will be like to look back at this decade in general from history <laughs> and what the movies are commenting on our times. Will be an interesting book. I hope to live to read, but uh, we'll see about that. But yes. Kong falls in love with Dwan, but and when and when Dwan, I hate that name. Mm-hmm. I do too. Dwan, yes, I do hate it. <laughs> name pronunciation i wrote it down renee aubergeonne renee aubergeonne